Welcome to episode number 88 of the Fitness Devil podcast. Today we have Jade Teta on, and this one is special and unique in that we may not have a better example of a guest who is successful because of world-class communication skills and engagement. Just listen to Jade through our conversation, and you should, as a fitness professional, take a ton, or in any walk of life, take a ton out of how to engage and have people like you. It's just a beautiful showcase of it. So we talk about tying fit, physical fitness to meaningful pursuits, a really, really well-explained discussion about hormones, metabolism, cortisol, how these things all interplay. Uh, and we get into some talk about just being a kind human and helping people being a better person. Uh, Jade's really all about that stuff. This one is great. I hope you love it. Shut up and sit down. Hi everyone, today's guest, Jade Tata, is all about physical and mental development. Jade was a personal trainer for 25 years. Uh, he has a degree in biochemistry and practices as a doctor of natural medicine. This is the stuff that I managed to pull off his website. So, uh, And Jade is also the author of several books, uh, writer for his own blog, regular contributor to a lot of publications, including T Nation. We've been on sort of a run of T Nation writers lately. Maybe that has something to do with the fact that I recently started writing for them or it just, we got access to a bunch of guys yeah. uh, that we wouldn't necessarily have access to otherwise. So uh, welcome, Jade. It's really great to have you on here. Love you, boys. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, and okay. it was good we started this because before we're kind of on a roll, we're like getting on all the good stuff. Like, would you say you're, you're basically when you got in here, you're considered like a female hormone specialist. <laughs> and I was like, we got to start crazy, this. crazy, man. When I started out, uh, I really got, uh, you know, I was working with mostly women, personal training, working yeah. with mostly women. And, you know, uh, they kind of dragged me kicking and screaming. I was kind of ignorant and arrogant, young, you know, uh, weightlifter. And they were like, look, we're not guys. You got to treat us differently. And I went and tried to figure out everything I could on female metabolism. And then the weirdest of things happened. I started, I became an expert in female metabolism. If you look at me, I'm like, I'm like how did that happen? So, <laughs> no, I was just saying, it's like, good. It's a good thing I started writing for Teen Nation because I started getting some bros in my world, which I needed. <laughs> right. there, there isn't necessarily a ton of stuff out there about uh, female training hormones. I know. A lot of people not big fans of Lyle McDonald's personality and his antics, but I know he's one of the guys putting stuff out there. Uh, I recently read a book. It was called Roar by, I think it was a PhD named Stacy Sims. And of course, I read it and I think it was half really good information, in particular the hormonal stuff. But then unfortunately, she deals with a lot of bullshit and pseudoscience and, and some yeah. stuff. I'm just like, holy fuck. Uh, I can't get behind this crap. So yeah. it, it was sort of tricky, but she did actually put out some pretty good in, nutritional recommendations for female athletes as they're training and certainly the hormonal stuff and the bone mineral health stuff. But then yep. there's a bunch of other crap that was just like, Jesus, she even had a demonstration of a kettlebell swing taught completely wrong and described incorrectly. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. Well, you know, you know, it's funny, man, that world. I mean, I, you guys, I know you guys, uh, we look right. All of us being in this field and we look and we see, I come from the natural medicine world and it's funny because I find myself moving more and more away from it because there is just so much stuff that, you know, people are making up. There's great stuff on the conventional side. There's great stuff on the natural medicine side, but we have to be evidence-based. Otherwise we're just making shit up. And I think, um, that is hugely important. I've found that I've moved much yeah. more to the middle, partly because I see so many people from my background, the natural medicine world, just 
making stuff up. And we just can't do that in this field. It's, it's, it's not what it's about and you're not going to get good results doing that. So, you know, that's unfortunate to hear, but you know, at least you got some good information out of it. I, I find oftentimes when I read natural medicine people, you have to really kind of dig deep to get the good stuff and it is there, but it usually is, you know, sort of overwhelming, the nonsense, you know, unfortunately. I was going to say like, you're talking about moving over and I'm friends with Ben House and he, his website's Functional Med Costa Rica. He's like, I just haven't changed the name, but he's moved away from even that classification, even though that's his website name, because he's just, everyone associates him with pseudoscience and he's deeply science oriented. So it's just kind of funny, like you have pockets of that stuff, which is really good. Um, but then it can go so far the other way. Yeah. Another good example, you probably know Dr. Spencer Nadalski, right? You're familiar with him? Yep. Yeah, yep, so, absolutely. And Spencer is one of the most credible evidence-based medical professionals you will ever encounter. And yep. he's an osteopath. And osteopathic uh, stuff has some interesting origins. But then Dr. Joseph Mercola is also a famous osteopath. And you couldn't get two more different credible versus completely dangerously pseudoscientific charlatan, but they, they have the same title. So you can, and God, we have medical doctors with Dr. Jason Fung. I'm not a big fan of his stuff because he's been peddling out a lot of dubious stuff about fasting. And what's his name? Uh, Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz. Mehmet Oz is a, is a cardiologist. So you can get people on the theoretically credible side who are complete idiots. And you get some people who are may come from a background that not everybody trusts, but they could actually be incredibly evidence-based. So I think it's really important to evaluate the individual. Yeah. And and I also think that, you know, given that we're having, you know, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm, my training is in naturopathic medicine, yeah. which is, <laughs> I mean, when I think about that, that, that whole thing, most of my, most of my um, colleagues in that field, I would not recommend most yeah. people see, right. I just, I just wouldn't because it goes, so far over to the non-credible side. But I think we also have to say conventional medicine has suffered tremendously Absolutely. because they also don't really uh, oftentimes speak of the art of this. And we all know that this is both art and science. But when you're talking about the art, you just can't be making stuff up. The science has to inform you. So what I oftentimes say is I let the science refine my approach. Yeah. But it doesn't always define my approach. And I think that's part of the problem. Conventional medicine is just like – Science defines everything and alternative medicine is kind of like no art defines everything and I'm one of these people that kind of says you know what no matter what you do you better go and find the science to help refine your approach because we have to be very careful about making up nonsense in this field and that is what um, we see a lot and I know it's frustrating to all three of us obviously I mean three of us haven't had this conversation yet. But there has to be the individuals like ourselves who are taking the best of both worlds and finding this middle zone that's really sort of balancing art and science. And that's an evolving, moving process. But I would agree with you. You know, to me, um, Spencer Nadolsky is absolutely incredibly uh, – he's incredible at what he does. And, you know, Dr. McCullough to me has a lot of just nonsense. You know, I mean some of his stuff is good, so I'm not going to bash him completely, but mm -hmm. a lot of it, most of it, I would even say, mm -hmm. is just off the rails. And I think it's important for all of us and anyone listening just to kind of understand, you know, we're in this place. I know the three of us think about it, right? We're in this weird place in our professions right now where it's just information inundated constantly, and we don't know where to, to go. And so that's why I love, you know, being here with you guys so we can kind of help people figure out how do we make sense of all of this and stay evidence-based, 
while also staying open-minded and being creative and pushing the boundaries of what works and what doesn't. All right. So I wanted to, I I dug through a lot of your uh, media, a lot of your uh, articles and stuff like that, just to find some stuff to talk about, which is what I like to do. And there's a recent post that stood out about tying physical fitness to meaningful pursuits. And I was hoping you could elaborate a bit more on that. I'll leave that open to you. Yeah. Uh, oh, man, I'm glad we're starting with this. This, <laughs> this really kind of speaks to my heart. You know, it's kind of like this, man. I mean, if you I, I look at it like this and I'm sure you guys can relate. We humans. Right. If there's one thing about life that um, we all could agree on is that life is full of suffering. It's a very sort of Buddhist concept. Right. We know that all of us, we go through romantic hurts. We lose loved ones to death. We um, we struggle through financial difficulties. We as humans have to deal with heartache and pain and failures and fears, right? That's just part of being alive. All of us sort of have this, whether it's stuff that we did when we were growing up, romantic issues, issues with jobs and all of this stuff. And to me, I go, what is the one place in the world where you can step foot into a place and the whole job, the whole reason of being there is to challenge yourself with pain and failure and mental resilience. It's the gym, right? So to me, the gym is a grand metaphor for life. We are essentially honing our muscles and our physical bodies, but we're also honing our mental resilience as well. So I've always said if we approach life like we approach the gym, we would oftentimes, instead of avoiding failure and running away from our fears, we would be looking for opportunities to fail and looking for ways to confront our fears. So the gym makes me think of it like this. You guys ever hear this saying, it's like rise to the occasion? Yep. Well, in the gym, we don't rise to the occasion. We create the occasion, right? And to me, I feel like it's the same in life. You don't rise to the occasion in life. Oftentimes, you create the occasion. So how does this manifest for me, actually? So just like we have PRs, personal records, we chase in the gym on deadlift and squat and things like that. I, I think about fear PRs in life. You know, we, uh, for example, I used to be afraid to fly. So what did I do? I didn't avoid planes. I got on more planes. I started to fly much more. And um, I'm not going to say that I'm 1,000% comfortable with flying today, but it is no longer a fear where it's debilitating, where I will actually, I used to drive my car across country just because I didn't want to get on a plane. <laughs> Now I'll travel overseas and I'll do that kind of stuff. So that's what it means to me. And I think that when we look at it like that, it's a really interesting way of looking at life. But us three guys, we do that in the gym. I think we all should be doing it in life. And that's that's uh, how I see that. I, um, I remind you, you're talking about the gym. So I'm reminded of watching some videos. It's actually Jill Coleman's feed. And she was working out on your deck gym. So is that where you yep. are right now? So is that still the same place? Yep, yep absolutely. And you know, Jill's my ex-wife, right? Yeah, We're exactly. super, still super close. But uh, yeah. she, she's been someone I followed for a while too. And I actually think she's a really incredible fitness professional. And I think I kind of found you guys around the same time. And, and yes, I, I know the history and the story of this all. And I know how you guys are really close. And, and she's been yep. crazy successful in her, her career as well. So um, yep. yeah, but you guys, you have a gym on your deck. How the fucking cool is that? <laughs> and you and you want to know what, man? It's actually, I actually got rid of that place and it's killing me because that oh. place was like the best place ever. And I always, everyone used to come say, hey, I want to, I want to work out on your Santa Monica deck and I don't have it anymore. I miss it a lot. But. Man, you lost all your street cred. I know. I, I lost <laughs> like, all my street cred, like, man. <laughs> like you went natural paths, you lost it. And then like, you're like, had the deck gym, you're, you're jacked. So like, you got some credibility, but. <laughs> 
Exactly, <laughs> and now I have to start all over again. <laughs> Somehow I doubt that very much. Well, and it's just funny to see how things go. But um, okay, let's let's kind of dive into some of the other shit, and I think this will actually be kind of fun because we can get into the metabolic everything. But let's talk calories because that's a big thing right now: calories in, calories out, calories matter, blah 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 blah. But hormones play a, a pivotal role, especially kind of in your what you do. What do people need to know about hormones to understand their effects on fat gain or fat loss or just health in general? Yeah, you know, when I think people get this hormone thing and this calorie thing, you know, sort of mixed up in my mind. To me, it's like we we humans are weird, right? We like to create these false dichotomies where it's just like it's all calories. No, no, no. It's all hormones, right? And to me, I'm like it's both. It's quality and quantity. But if we look at the research and we actually – chase this down, we know that in the end, calories matter most, right? They just do. This is absolutely clear. Anyone who kind of disputes this in my mind doesn't have much credibility in this field. However, at the same time, anyone who says that hormonal effects of metabolism don't matter also doesn't have credibility in my mind because here's the thing. How do we stay on a diet in the first place? We have to control sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings, all of these things. What is responsible for those biofeedback clues? Hormones, right? So the two are inseparable, really. And the way I like to think about this, I, I, it's, it's sort of like, imagine if we didn't understand how a car worked, right? Where we were like, you know, we saw a car as something that you live in, right? Instead of something you drive from point A to point B. This is how people misunderstand the metabolism. They see it as a calculator instead of what it really is, which is more like a biofeedback thermostat in a sense. So obviously, if you're living out of your car, you can do that. It's not going to be very efficient or effective versus using it what it's there for. Well, if you misunderstand the metabolism, you're also not going to be very effective or efficient with it. So to drive this sort of home and to give those listening sort of a really tangible way to think about this, Anyone, in my mind, it's pretty easy for us to help you lose weight. Let's just have you eat like a bird and run marathons like crazy. However, if we're talking about fat loss, now we have to have a a conversation about not just calories, but hormones. And if we're talking about maintaining that fat loss, hormones matter even more. So here's the way I like to look at this. I like to look at it like this. As you start a diet, and by the way, I'm a... I'm a nutrition eclectic. I don't care. Paleo, vegan, carnivore, zone diet, keto. I don't care where you start. But in the end, you're going to have some reactions. All three of us sitting here talking, we're uniquely different metabolically. We're different psychologically and we're different in our personal preferences. Such is the case with every single person listening to this. So no matter where you start, you're going to start to see some results in your metabolism. It's going to impact sleep. Is it stabilizing sleep or are you having interrupted, fragmented sleep? It's going to impact hunger. Is your hunger stable and in control or out of control? Are your cravings insatiable and always there or uh, not a problem at all? Is your energy unpredictable and unstable? These are the things that hormones impact. So unfortunately, when people think about hormones, they think about things that they shouldn't. They think about estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and maybe even insulin. When instead, what they really should be thinking about are things like ghrelin and leptin and some of the stress hormones and the incretins, you know, GLP and GIP and all these things that when we eat, either keep us satisfied quickly and satiated for a long period of time or not. So from my perspective, when we're having this conversation, 
What we really should be thinking about metabolism is how can we eat so that we can be full quickly, stay full for a long period of time, and not have a ton of cravings? Because in my mind, and I would ask you guys what you think about this, I don't care what um, people say what a healthy diet is. A healthy diet is not healthy if, as a result of eating it, it leads to binge eating behaviors of all the wrong things later. And so what we really should be doing is meeting people in a way that balances their metabolism so that they can manage both hormones and calories. That's the discussion that we should be having. And I'll say one more thing and I'll shut up. <laughs> Science. This goes, back to the, this goes back to the sort of conversation we were having before. Science is not a tool for individuals. It's a tool for averages, but we have to use science to start. So what does the science say about a diet that is a low-calorie, hormonally balanced diet? It's typically a diet that is loaded with protein, fiber, and water-rich foods. These things fill you up. They're digested slowly. They satiate and satisfy, and they have minimal calories. Now, that's chicken and broccoli, right? That's not a very interesting diet. So then, based on our own individual preferences, we need to add a degree of salt, sugar, alcohol, starch, and fat to that protein, fiber, and water base. So the protein, fiber, and water base is what the science says. And then what the individual adjustment says is add enough salt, sugar, alcohol, fat, and starch to make that diet enjoyable for you. Enough but not too much, and that becomes the starting point. And then we adjust like detectives, adjusting the macros and or the flavor profiles and everything else to get a diet that we can live with and love and last over the, over the long run. Well, and honestly, that was probably the best definition of what people generally say is it's all about consistency and the big thing, adherence. But you just broke down adherence in a, in a way that people have something to use because it usually just gets generalized. Like it, it's whatever you can adhere to as long as your calories are in line. But that doesn't give many people adjustments or um, um, a good guideline on what to do because like I could adhere to Oreos all day. And then they use that as the excuse to do that where adherence is those things that you're talking about, which is probably the best way I've ever heard it described in my opinion. I think we need to accept something that's really important that and I, I think people understand this now. We were evolved for a life that is different than the convenient life we live now. We have access to more hyperpalatable, high-calorie food than our ancestors did. And there are biological wiring. Stefan Guillenet's book, The Hungry Brain, is actually one of the best ones at describing this stuff. Where ancestors, they come across a, a bee honey, a honeycomb, um, a hive, and they literally would binge on this stuff because they don't normally have access to it. So now our brain says, oh, Fruit Loops and ice cream and chocolate, and we still have those same binge cravings, except the consequences now are much, much more severe uh, than what we dealt with in, uh, in past in, in our ancestors. So realizing that we weren't wired for this world, then we now have to say, we have to actually consciously manage our nutrition. We cannot just leave it to our hormonal, uh, our cravings, our, our instincts. You have to be very mindful, I hate that word, but mindful of what you're eating and you have to put some thinking and planning into it in order to maintain our health. And our world is getting more and more convenient. I just wrote something on my website and it was about food delivery apps and their proliferation and how this is making it much easier to break our food environment at home. We can keep junk out of the house. Now it can be delivered to you impulsively 
And it's, you have to expend less energy and effort to go get higher calorie, more convenient food. And that is the way our world is going. So we better be prepared by setting some boundaries and creating our world around us and being mindful about what we eat. Back to you. We brought you on yeah, to talk. I, I, so. I was going to say, like, I actually want your opinion on it. Cause kind of from your background is, A, do you see that as something that is substantial? And B, what do you normally do with it? Because that essentially will do all the things you're talking about. Like, what's the best way to combat, like, I guess the hostile environment that we live in? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I actually agree 1,000%. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing that you said, Andrew. It's, it, to me, that's a beautiful way of saying it. And the way that I think that we manage this, it's kind of like this, right? We all know there's, there's, there's this weird thing that happens. If we all eat nothing but chicken and broccoli, we know, based on our psychology, it's the, it's the equivalent of don't think of a white elephant, right? If you say don't eat sugar, you're eventually going to binge on sugar. So we don't want to go all chicken and broccoli. However, if we move too far into the highly palatable, hedonistic world of food, we go off the rails, which is why we don't want, in my mind, a coach who gives you a cheat meal without being aware of this is setting you off for a cheat month, right? And this is why these one-size-fits-all refeeds and stuff like this don't necessarily work. So your question, Dean, was, well, how do we manage this? To me, I go like this. So Sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings. I use a, a, a silly little acronym for this, SHMEC, right? Sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. When your SHMEC is in check, this means that your metabolism is hormonally balanced and you're likely to be able to maintain a calorie deficit over the long run. When your SHMEC goes out of check, your hormonal metabolism is out of balance and you're not likely to be able to maintain that calorie deficit for a long time. So now what we need to do is we need to go what foods – keep my schmeck in check and what foods throw my schmeck out of check. And this is going to be somewhat different for different people. One concept I like to use, so it's kind of like let's eat in a way that keeps our schmeck in check and let's understand buffer and trigger foods, which I think is a very important concept. So like there's three guys here and then everyone listening, think about this um, and we'll just do it with the three of us right now. Um, so Andrew and Dean, if you had wine with dinner, one glass of wine, would that make you more or less likely to overeat at dinner and want dessert? Me personally, it probably wouldn't have an effect, but I think for a lot of people it would. For, for me, it wouldn't. It would be an, like a, there'd be no effect. No. And for, <laughs> as a <laughs> Four glasses of wine, I'm going yeah, okay. to overeat. The yeah. governors are off. Yep. For, and for I'll, me, having a glass of wine actually makes me less likely yeah. to overeat my starch and less likely to want dessert. Mm -hmm. So something about that wine acts as a buffer for me. Something about that wine is relatively neutral for you. For those listening, there's going to be some people like, oh, yeah, I'm a lot like Jade. And others are going to be like, if I have wine, I end up drinking the yeah. whole bottle and then binging on Twizzlers all night long. I mean, it's just different, right? So one person's buffer food is another person's yeah. trigger food. A buffer food is a food that regardless of what you think in terms of its health benefits, helps you eat better later. Some of us know someone who can have two or three Hershey's Kisses, not a whole lot of calories, and as a result of having that crappy food, end up eating better later. That would be a buffer food. Mm -hmm. However, some, some of us know people who have those three Hershey's Kisses and then eat the whole bag of Hershey's Kisses and, and then later on eat, go and binge on burgers and pizza. That would be a trigger food. So each of us need to understand what are our buffer foods and what are our trigger foods. And each of us need to understand what ways of eating keep our schmeck in check. Here's another example. And you guys can, everyone listening can kind of yeah. check in with themselves. Fasting is a big deal, right? How do you know if fasting works for you or not? Well, you know, does fasting keep your schmeck in check? 
or does fasting throw your schmeck out of check? If yeah. you fast all the way till noon or 24 hour fast, are you more or less likely to have a 5,000 calorie meal? Will you eat normally or will you binge for, at that meal and then all, all day long? For me, mm. by the way, I found that once I start eating breakfast, once I start eating, the Italian in me comes out and I want to keep eating. So what I do is I delay that gratification for a little while. For other people, if they don't eat breakfast, they end up binging on a boo-boo burrito later on because they didn't have the breakfast. So asking yourself, does skipping breakfast or having breakfast keep my schmeck in check over the long run is the perfect way to manage this. Because in the end, let's face it, you need two things for fat loss. Two things are required. A calorie deficit, it's absolutely required. And schmeck and check over the long run to maintain it. If you don't have those two things, it's not going to be successful. And so this is what we need to be doing. And it's different for everyone. So I wish if I had a dream in this uh, in this uh, sort of community and in the health and fitness world, I would hope that we stop moving. We'd move away from these fad sort of diets. And by to me, a fad diet is simply this, a diet that everyone thinks everyone should be on. The diet that you should be on is the one that works for you, the one that keeps you in a calorie deficit and keeps your schmeck in check, period. I hope that we get to that place in nutrition where we essentially say, do what works for you, which means people have to take a, a greater degree of responsibility yeah. in managing their macros, managing their foods, knowing their buffer and trigger foods, knowing whether exercise stimulates appetite for too much or whether it doesn't. These are the things that each person has to take responsibility for. We need to stop being dieters and become more like metabolic detectives. And once we do, we will become successful. Well, that I, want, a, okay. I want to point out something just, just to bring people back to just how evidence-based you are. You're saying these two things, uh, you know, that you have to be in a calorie deficit and basically that you have to eat with a sustainable a, a diet or nutritional ideology that is sustainable for you. And this is almost exactly the same thing that uh, Sohi Lee is famous for saying, and Lane Norton always quotes this stuff. And these are two of the people reputed to be two of the most evidence-based people in the industry, and you're saying the same thing as them. So I just wanted to bring everybody's attention well, to that. And I just like the fact, because like right now, because of macros and calories and diets and tracking stuff, is that it almost gets it almost gets villainized in the sense that you shouldn't have to do this your whole life. And although that is true, it comes back to that environment which we live in is that it's a hostile environment and like your own thoughts around food and your unconscious thoughts are essentially fueled by evolution, which is fucked compared to where they're at now. And it it almost becomes that cognitive oversight has to almost happen, especially when you want to lose weight. Because Unfortunately, you have to do the hard thing because leaving you up to your own unconscious thoughts got you there. And I think that it shouldn't be villainized. It just should be more detective work, like you said. And I like the schmeck. I, I love the schmeck, man. Like that, that actually works <laughs> in terms of that because it, it's a smarter way to cognitively override without people thinking that they're stuck for life. Because when it comes yeah. to counting, they think counting is or this diet or that diet is they're stuck in whatever part of that diet that they're in where schmeck kind of takes that as a, a lens. To put on top yeah, of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, and here's the thing, right? Easy easy is earned. It's easy yeah. is earned in the gym and easy is earned in the, the kitchen. And here's the way I look at this. If you want to be an intuitive eater, if people get intuition all wrong, they think it's magic. Intuition is a sixth sense. Yeah. It's an unconscious sense that comes from the integration of all our other senses plus past experience. 
So intuition isn't magic. Intuition comes out of experience and the integration of our other senses. So for example, if you've never tracked and you've never weighed and you've never measured and you don't know what a, a good protein is versus a good carb and you don't know how many calories are in a grilled chicken breast, I bet you all of us would say eight ounce chicken breast, we all know that's about 250 to 800 calories. People know this if you've earned it, right? So if you want to be an intuitive eater, you first have to, in my opinion, be a tracker and a counter and a calorie manipulator. Then you can earn the easy that comes with intuitive eating. The worst thing that you can do is think you're going to be an intuitive eater when you know nothing about nutrition in the first place and have no reps in the kitchens. And so to me, that's the first point. The second point is this. If you want to start with intuitive eating, fine. Still, what's going to happen? I'm eating intuitively. Is my Schmeckin check? Yes or no? If it is, my hormones are balanced. Am I losing fat? Yes or no? If it is, I have a calorie deficit. If I don't, then I'm going to have to change some things and maybe start counting macros and calories. On the other side, if I want to be a calorie counter and macro person, I still have to do the same thing. Is that calorie level and that macronutrient ratio keeping my Schmeck in check? If it is, it's balancing my hormones. Am I losing fat? If it is, then I'm in a calorie deficit. This is the way it goes. To me, again, it's a false dichotomy to say intuitive eating versus counting macros. They're the same thing, and they should be used almost like a detective uses uh, you know, his tools, the microscope and the, you know, the magnifying glass and all of that kind of stuff. These are tools that we can use. They shouldn't be seen as I'm on Team X. And I'm on team Y. The only team that you really should be on is the team that keeps Schmeck in check and keeps you in a calorie deficit over and, the long run. And your buffer and triggers work like even just that way of explaining that works for intuitive eating. And not just use macro counting is that for some people, macro counting can be a trigger or a buffer. And same thing with intuitive eating. And so Absolutely. like that's where I guess personal preference. If you can't fucking count or you can't be intuitive, like not the right thing for you. And it's just the way it has to be in this environment. Here's unfortunately. a tough Here's a tough part of it, because there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be emotionally resistant to any of these things. Then, if that's a problem, then they're going to spiral into obesity. Now, there's a whole conversation about socially normalizing and making it socially acceptable to be obese and the argument about uh, health at any size, and that's a very big, complicated thing. But what do you say about to someone who is struggling with any of these measures and that struggle is leading them down the path to obesity. Yeah, I mean, to me, I look at it like this. If you want to, it's very simple, right, in life. If you, wanna, if you want to drive a car and be good at driving a car on the highway, you have to study, get a license, and be able to drive and then drive around. Then you learn to drive. Then it becomes second nature. Then you can drive from work to home without even being consciously aware of really what you're doing. It's the same thing. If you want to ignore this stuff, do it. Just realize that you're not going to get the results out of your body ever. Your metabolism could care less about your convenience, your timetables, or whether it's easy or not. It does what it does. So I'm one of these people that says, you know, it's fine. Like, just be, let's just all be honest. If you don't want to do the work, no problem. I get it. Like, this is not easy stuff. We, you know, but I also go like this. We humans, in my mind, we have four jobs that we must do as humans. We got to make a living, manage finances. We have to gain and maintain our personal health. We have to get and receive love relationships, and we have to develop purpose and meaning. If you don't want to do the health and fitness thing, that's fine, but realize those other three jobs are going to suffer. And it's just, to me, it's kind of this tough love thing. I'm, I'm kind of like, I hear you. I get it. 
I'll empathize with you, but at the same time, your metabolism doesn't give a damn. So if you want to be unhealthy and overweight, that's your prerogative. But And that is what's going to happen if you don't do these things. It's just very simple in my mind. Are there any further things about metabolism that you feel like people misunderstand and that you want to clarify to help them? No question. One of the big things that people don't understand is the idea of what the metabolism really is. What is it designed to do? It is designed very simply to manage stress. It is one big, huge stress barometer. And when you understand that, you start understanding what it is doing. For example, what is the number one stress? And you alluded to this, Andrew, um, before when you were talking about the ancestral human. What was the number one stress of the ancestral human? Staying Primarily alive. starvation, right? Yeah. So anytime the body is under stress, it tends to get a starvation response. That's what we'll see. What is a starvation response? Schmeck goes out of check. Very simple. Sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings become unstable and unpredictable. And so if you want to talk about stress and all this kind of stuff and get your metabolism to a place where it is managing stress appropriately, first see it as one big stress barometer and then start doing all the things that take the load, the stress load off. Overeating and undereating are a stress to the body. Overexercising and underexercising are a stress to the body. Isn't it funny that the couch potato and the uh, dieter who's running around and eating nothing both have schmeck out of check? Isn't that funny? Isn't it also funny that everyone wants to look like an athlete and function like an athlete, but they do things that an athlete would never do? An athlete does not eat less and exercise more. No athlete in his or her right mind is going to do that. It would be stupid. What they do is eat more and exercise more. In other words, one of the things that you can do to balance the stress equation in the metabolism is narrow that gap. If you're eating more and exercising less, couch potato, that's a stress to the body. If you're doing the reverse, eating less and exercising more, that big gap is a stress to the body. Instead, what we want to do is narrow that gap, eat more, exercise more, athlete, or eat less, exercise less, Tradi traditional hunter-gatherer. Yeah. You go hang out with a bunch of traditional hunter-gatherers or Parisian in Europe, right? They're not, they're not running around doing kettlebell swings and power cleans and doing advanced metcons. They're just eating very little and walking a lot. Same thing with an athlete. They're not eating less and exercising more. They're training like crazy and they're eating like crazy. So actually, this raises something really important, and because you have dealt with uh, a lot of women in your in your work over the years, men don't necessarily see the same pressure. But especially when it comes to female athletes, there actually is a little bit of emotional pressure, societal pressure to look a certain way. So they can be under pressure to probably undereat relative to what they need to perform. Any yeah. any experience with that or thoughts on that? Yeah, hang on one sec. I'm just notice my bat my thing's gonna jump out of batteries, but I'm gonna talk to you as I walk over here. Sure. Here's the thing you need to know about women, right? Let me just plug this in. The thing that you need to understand about women, we all should understand, is that if we're if we have a stress barometer, our, you know, our, our metabolism is a stress barometer, right? Understand this. Women are the uh, the gender of childbearing. So from that perspective, you can kind of think that their metabolism needs to be a little bit more sensitive to stress. And it is a little bit, right? So this is why some women, not all, we can't make these generalized statements, but some mm -hmm. women respond negatively to keto diets or severe fasting or all this kind of stuff, right? Women also, to your point in the research, women are, in our society, definitely judged primarily on their looks, whereas men are judged primarily on their status. So the, like you said, women have 
a uh, greater impetus to try to look good. And they go about it the wrong way because they're not understanding the stress barometer nature of the metabolism. And so that when they push themselves to the extreme, they can potentially, depending on the woman, be have their system kicked even more out of balance. So Schmeck goes out of check even more. And by the way, when I use the term Schmeck, just for everyone listening, it's kind of a euphemism or a catch-all phrase for all biofeedback in the body. So that's sleep, hunger, mood, energy cravings, exercise performance, exercise recovery, and two big ones for women. Again, they are the gender of childbearing, menses, and libido. Those are huge biofeedback for women. Men, erection would be another one, libido and erection, but these are also. And then digestive function and signs and symptoms. If you're someone who has joint pain or gets headaches or things like that, when you're a system gets out of balance when it gets stressed out, these symptoms will have an uptick. So I agree completely that women in particular may, again, not all, I don't like using these generalized, but a lot of women can be negatively impacted by these extremes in diet and exercise, and they are usually the ones who tend to go to the extremes with diet and exercise. When you can see that, I guess, like that's essentially a female athlete triad too. Like yep. basically losing their period is like a, an indicator of essentially schmack, um, but it's a very good biofeedback tool to tell them like, very specifically they're eating too little and or eating too little and doing too much or just doing way too much. Absolutely. And I don't know if you guys have seen this. I mean, tell me, but I've had this happen. Actually, one of the one of my most interesting case studies, and it's not one case study. This has happened to me over and over again where I'm working with someone. And in my early years of doing this work, I would be doing, oh, my God, you're not being compliant. Put your macros, you know, do less macros, do more high intensity yeah. interval training, do this and that. And then they would go away on vacation, come back and have, you know, two weeks later and have dramatic fat loss and dramatic <laughs> weight loss where we were at a standstill. And then I had this one woman, I'll never forget it. She got on my, um, you know, I, I used to use one of these little Tanita scales or whatever, which is just a way to. Uh, you know, predictably measure based on that particular measurement. And she started crying. And I was like, aren't you happy? She's like, no, I'm so confused. I ate every, yeah. any, any, everything I wanted. I didn't work out at all while I was on vacation. All I was doing was laying out, drinking margaritas, going for long walks, kind of stuff. Why did that happen? That happened because the stress got taken off the system. And all of a sudden, the metabolism starts to respond again. This actually leads perfectly um, into where we're going anyways yeah. um, with cortisol and just the simple fact that cortisol gets demonized in our industry. And this fails to understand what cortisol is and what it isn't and why it's important to our function and specifically to our goals as fitness professionals. Could you clarify cortisol for our listeners? Because we're talking about stress. We might as well just go right to the source. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we all know it's funny. Cortisol is my absolute favorite fat burning hormone. Let me say that again. <laughs> Cortisol is my favorite fat-burning hormone. That's true. Because cortisol is a fat-burning hormone. Cortisol's entire job is to release fuel to be used when you are under stress. First, by the way, uh, just to give people an understanding, people say, oh, I'm feeling anxious and agitated. I must have high cortisol. That's not cortisol. You don't feel cortisol. That's adrenaline. The two kind of come together. But part of what adrenaline and cortisol, these two stress hormones do, is to help to release fuel reserves so we can use them, right? When we see the, the saber-toothed tiger that everyone's yeah. always talking about lurking <laughs> out there jumps in front of us and we have to fight or flee, cortisol and adrenaline, adrenaline first and then cortisol a little bit later is responsible for that. 
We want cortisol high during exercise. It is, a, it is beneficial. We want cortisol high during exercise. However, when we're not exercising, we want cortisol low because here's how hormones function. And I know this gets a little confusing because people are like, wait, Jade, I've heard cortisol is a fat storing hormone. Well, hormones behave differently depending on who they're socializing with. Like right now, the three of us are talking and we're hanging out. We're, we're having you know, a discussion about science and metabolism. If we go out tonight to a bar, right, or to a strip club or something <laughs> like that, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about different things. We're going to be we're going to behave a little differently. We're going to socialize differently. Cortisol, when it comes along with human growth hormone, low insulin and adrenaline is and testosterone is a fat burning hormone. That's what it's like during short-term fasting and during exercise, right? But cortisol, when it is socializing with high calories and lots of insulin, cortisol becomes a major fat-storing hormone. Lots of cortisol at rest can desensitize the insulin receptors and make us less likely to tolerate carbohydrates, for example. So I know that's a big, long biochemical diatribe. What does it actually mean for you? What it essentially means is that when you are working out, you want to push hard and raise cortisol levels to get this nice fat burning effect and a nice afterburn effect from exercise. However, when you are not exercising, what you want is to woo-saw, to relax. You want cortisol to be a little bit lower. And once you understand that, now you can begin to do some things around exercise. For example, what's one of the best ways to lower cortisol after a workout? Breathe. Go for a nice, long walk, relaxing walk, and or have a small meal like whey protein or a little bit of carbohydrates that will lower that cortisol level. What's a way to raise cortisol levels right during your workout? Have a little bit of you know, caffeine kick or something like that right before your workout and maybe work out. Don't eat too close um, to working out. Like you wouldn't want to have a baked potato 30 minutes before you work <laughs> out, right? So these are some of the things that you can do. Now, cortisol is also going to be impacted by sleep uh, in a very, very big way. And here's the other thing to understand about high amounts of cortisol at rest. Cortisol turns off the motivation centers in the brain and turns on the reward centers in the brain. So sleep deprivation, lots of stress, makes those highly palatable hedonistic foods more highly palatable and hedonistic. And so cortisol at rest is associated with cravings. And so there's this dual thing. I call it the Jekyll and Hyde hormone, right? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? Dr. Jekyll was this you know, upstanding man, you know, for those who know the story and was a good man, but they had this other evil side that Mr. Hyde that would come out. Same thing with cortisol. Cortisol in when you're high stressed, stressed out at rest and always stressing and running around like crazy and doing nothing to relax you, not doing massages, not sleeping well, not taking naps, sex and physical affection, by the way, orgasm is an amazing way to put the lower cortisol, hanging out with pets and family, you know, as long as you're not pissing you off and peeing all over the carpets, all these things, walking in green settings, doing creative pursuits, all these things will lower cortisol levels. But we want those cortisol levels high during exercise. So I don't know if, if that was too much biochemistry, no. um, but there's a lot that goes on there. I'll, I'll just give you one more mechanism. One other way to think about this is if you look at the biochemistry of cortisol, there's two uh, enzymes 
that drive fat into and out of the cells, hormone-sensitive lipase and lipoprotein lipase. Cortisol stimulates both of these, so it just increases energy flux through the cells. Now, insulin, right, blocks uh, HSL, which releases fat. So insulin plus cortisol is a very bad combination, but here's where we have to be careful. Insulin, even insulin plus cortisol without a calorie deficit is not going to make you fat, right? Or without a calorie surplus is not going to make you fat. However, a calorie surplus plus insulin plus cortisol drives up fat gain specifically around the middle. And I actually posted this on my Instagram a couple weeks back where there you can look at even thin women – uh, larger than average waist to hip ratios and see that their resting cortisol levels are higher than average. And it's hard to visualize that, right? Because you're just like, oh, they're thin, but their waist, their hip to waist uh, ratios are higher. Are their waist to hip ratios are higher? Yes. And that is a result of cortisol. You also can look at Cushing's disease, which is a yeah. condition of very excess cortisol. And these people look like, you know, gigantic <laughs> mooses, big moon faces and big round bellies. So we don't want to be terrified of cortisol during exercise but we do want to try to manage that cortisol elevation at rest well and that goes to just this cognitive oversight of even understanding what that is because again well, let's go back to saber tiger when you ran away from the saber tiger like you had to go hunt your food there was a natural opportunity to de-stress because that's just how life was we're here we're just surrounded by stress when you go and drive like every car is an opportunity to die essentially like that's not how it is but oh, oh, but oh. just being cognitively over like I'll, I'll actually explain that in a slightly different way because you're actually on something really good. We have an enormous amount of stimulus now. Absolutely. Input. Television, advertising, life coming at us at a fast pace. We will pull our cell phones up of our pocket if we have a moment of boredom. So we're getting so much more stimulus and a lot of that does present as stress. But that's where all that woo stuff or meditation or acupuncture massages or just sitting and breathing after your workout because... We're essentially having all these foreign inputs in that weren't around before. So we have to almost cognitively turn that off. Eating is a perfect example. People go right in the middle of their work for like a 10 minute break to slam food in and they're stressed when really there should be that shut off period. And it's just a matter of knowing that. But if you don't know yeah. your enemy, like again, listening to this podcast and listening to that description, someone should look at that and be like, what can I do? And I, actually, I'd be like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what they can do just even naturally. Yeah. Yeah, to me, I mean, it's it's really interesting, right? I mean, wait, the, uh, one other thing about cortisol, by the way, since we're getting into the deep, you yeah. know, sort of um, science of this, is cortisol is interesting with food too, because when you fast, cortisol is elevated, yeah. but also when you eat, cortisol is elevated. Why? Well, when you fast, cortisol is elevated to release sugar and fat to be used because you didn't eat, but when you Eat cortisol is released because cortisol also is involved with immunostimulation. And if you're getting a lot of food and foreign particles into your body, it's an immune suppressant, which makes sense. But let's yeah. go back to your question about what can we do about lowering cortisol and stress hormones from this overstimulation? Well, there's lots of different things that you can do. One of we talked about, I call them R and R activities, rest and recovery activities. Um, Walking is one of the best. Not huffing and puffing walking, by the way. Not power walking. Woo-saw, relaxing, leisurely or leisurely walking, especially in green settings. They've done some really cool studies in Japan where they'll look at walking in the city or walking in the yeah. forest. And, in the, and they call this in Japan shinrin-yoku, which means bathing in green, bathing in the forest. Walking in green settings, both lower cortisol, both the walking in a city and the green settings lower cortisol, but the green settings uh, lower it much, much more. Even being in a green room, 
Like, you know, and being mm -hmm. around even fake plants can do that. Really? Coloring, any creative pursuits, listening to relaxing music, co coloring, painting, any kind of creating suit. Sex, taboo subject for a lot of people, but orgasm is one of the best things. Um, sauna therapies are really interesting because they duplicate what happens with exercise. Sauna, while you're in the hot stimulus, will raise cortisol and adrenaline. But when you come out, that kind of you get this compensatory relaxation effect. And you can further that even more by doing contrast. Hot, followed by cold, followed by cold, hot again. So it's hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. Usually we tell people to end in cold because that kind of suppresses you. So that's another way to do this. Massage, spa time, um, all of these kinds of things do this. And then, you know, to go to Andrew's point about being overly stimulated, there are some things wearing, you know, using blue blocking apps, using blue blocking glasses and things that sort of stop some of this stimulus from coming to us. And then the term that I think Andrew said he didn't like it, and I agree, mindfulness is an overused term. But learning to, when you're, see, here's the thing that we want to be careful about. Imagine if we were just like, well, you know what? Being in the gym is stressful, right? So let's not go in the gym. Yeah. Well, we know that that's not the way to handle stress. We go in the gym so we can handle more stress. So it's not about avoiding these stimulants so much as not overreacting to them. And this is a very stoic philosophy approach. It's not, you know, it's what you think of the wound or what you think of the suffering. Is it something that you can see as growth enhancing or is it something that you want to be a victim about, right? That I want to, I want to go around wound shopping and say, oh my God, guys, you know, I have this hangnail. Look at my thumb. Someone cut me. Oh my God. Versus, you know what? So I got cut. What can I learn from this? Those kinds of mindsets are what helps us manage stress hormones. So it's not separate. This is, you know, it gets very woo-woo. It's not separate mind and body. This is how you do it. You have to cultivate a mindset of growth in the same way. This goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of this call, right? In the same way we have a mindset about chasing the pain because we know it's going to make us grow in the gym. To some degree to manage stress, including cortisol and stress hormones, we want to also chase the suffering, expose ourselves to uncomfortable situations, and learn to manage those things as humans. I actually wanted to hijack this for a second because we have a lot of fitness professionals who listen to this. And I want you guys even to go back and re-listen to Jade talking through this episode. If you want a showcase of how to get people to like you, engage you, and listen to you, listen to how Jade interacts with us. He is he memorizes details, uses names as a very engaging manner in a way... A, I don't know if you've ever seen, Brett Contreras is fantastic at this stuff too, in his episode. But guys, pay attention to this stuff as he's doing it. There's a reason why Jade is successful with people and getting through to people. And it has as much to do with his social communication skills as it does with his, his scientific technical knowledge. So that's what's impressed me most about you here. And I think that anyone, I usually say this at the end with guests, but... If you're really interested in absorbing more of this stuff and what Jade does, you know, I can see people rushing to watch videos. Like, your writing is great, but to actually hear you, you know, in, in video content and actually getting to see your voice and the way you interact with people. So, that's, that is really cool. And I wanted to make sure people... Man, he already feels good. He's, he's like a, he's like a big famous writer and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, okay. okay, now that you hijacked it, I did want to talk about it. So, you know Mike, do you know Mike T. Nelson at all? Yeah. 
Um, anyways, yeah, yeah. He, he talks about the you stress distress, but it basically talks about what you talked about. And his new model is based around an amoeba, but basically you want to be a bigger circle instead of being so isolated in one thing. And that goes to just being able to handle stress, but also being able to adapt to and or train it. So like you were talking about saunas and there's the Wim Hof thing, but there's a, all these things that you can do so that your body at least knows those stresses and they've added them on. So it has like a bigger pool to, I guess, buffer. Or be able to adapt and handle stress. And I think a lot of people just end up doing nothing because it's a little bit bad. But being exposed to training, to hot environments, to different foods, all those things can allow you to handle it in the long run. I think most people just have a fear response to most things in life generally lately. Uh, I don't even know if lately, but does that yeah, make sense? You know, I think, I think Mike, uh, I think he's the one. I think he talks – me and him both talk a lot about metabolic flexibility. Yeah, Correct yes. me if I'm wrong. I think, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so – so metabolic flexibility is another way to manage this stress Absolutely. thing. We humans, right, we evolved in sort of this feast or famine, up and down, adapt, reactive reality. And so what happens with all of us is imagine this, right? Imagine we're all dealing with a system, the metabolism, that is adaptive and reactive, right? And in response to that, we do the same thing day in and day out, year in and year out. Ten years later, we're still eating less and exercising more. The metabolism is like, what are you, stupid? I am built on adaptation, and you keep doing the same thing. I adapted to that three weeks after you did it. So the way to handle this, too, is to change up your approach. And human, you know, ancestral humans were doing this by the seasons, right? So if we take those four models, eat less, exercise more, eat more, exercise less, eat less, exercise less, eat more, exercise more, think about the seasons. They were challenging their metabolism because – early spring, they were coming out of a very you know, sparse time of winter, and they were moving a lot less. This was a time of eat less, exercise more. But they didn't stay there because soon summer came, and now they were eating more and exercising more. But they didn't stay there because soon fall came, and all of a sudden they were in an eat more, exercise less state. And then winter came, and they were in an eat less, exercise less state. We can duplicate this as humans, and I tend to actually live my life this way. Some of us do this intuitively. I'd be, I bet you if I talk to you two guys, right? Like, I bet you on days, most people, when they don't work out, that that's probably your fasting day or you're eating very little, right? On the days I train, I eat like a madman. On the days I don't train, I might fast or I eat very sparingly. This is another way of doing this. But the point is, if you're someone who's been frustrated by your metabolism, consider the fact that you're doing something that the metabolism is already adapted to. You're eating less and exercising more your whole life. No wonder you haven't got results in 10 years. You have to challenge the metabolism, and you can do that through this cyclical eating. Well, and, and that's another huge approach to this. Well, Metflex, and Mike was the one who first introduced me to it, but like it, it just gives you so many scenarios for your body to adapt to, but it also gives you a lot of tools to just deal with our current environment. Because like you said, it was seasonal, but... Obviously, they didn't live as long, but we can use those same concepts within weeks and months to be better and to adapt that system better. They, they were forced to. We can use those as absolute tools to essentially for longevity. And like, I guess that would be the whole purpose of this whole fucking thing anyway. <laughs> you would think. Yeah. To live longer. Yeah, absolutely. I want, because I know Dean doesn't have a ton of time, so I wanted to bring you back to something that you also talked about, because we've been a little on the scientific side. And you write a lot, and a lot of it goes well beyond physical optimization and into having a better life and especially into being a better person. In a recent post, you talked about uh, your worth being about being a kind human, helping people, and not just having a pretty image on Instagram. 
<laughs> go ahead, unleash on that. Yeah. Well, you know, man, I have I have this theory, man. I mean, I, I have this theory that every single one of us humans, we as kids, right? We kind of think this is why we we always dream and play about superheroes and stuff like that because I think we have this sense of humans that we have a unique set of signature strengths that makes us um, specially suited to solve a problem for people. And I have this theory that if you're not here to help, then why the hell are you here? That life, part of one of our jobs is purpose and meaning, right? And purpose is never can be just about yourself. It has to be for other people. So part of the reason I guarantee the two of you do this podcast and do your work is because you have a desire to share your unique expertise, your abilities with other people so that they can learn and you can make the world a better place. And my theory is that this is our primary charge as humans. And those who aren't doing that, who are focused only on looking good and what they can get, never, ever reach that point of fulfillment, which is that part of fulfillment is this interesting thing, right? It's contentment, pride, satisfaction, and achievement, where it's just like, I feel like I mattered. I made, I made some of a difference. And it's, it's not about me. It's about other people. And so for me, that in the end, as I've aged and gotten better and made, you know, lots of mistakes and, you know, was kind of, you know, an ass at times and arrogant at times and a liar at times. As I've grown as a human, I have a lot, a lot of work to do. But as I've grown as a human, that has become my primary charge. And it's really funny because what it does is it's kind of where I was doing this in my younger years, chasing other things as I've gotten more purposeful and more um, into my work as doing good goodness and uh, when I went through my stuff with Jill, for those who don't know, I went through a pretty nasty divorce and I had an affair and this really changed my life. You know, I, I have this thing where in life things happen to us and we can either go left and become a completely degraded version of ourselves as a result or we can go right and be an elevated version of ourselves. Well, I chose right and I did an honor code at that time and I said I am going to be the most honest person from here on out, the kindest person, the most generous person and do something that makes a difference, not for myself not legacy for myself, but legacy for uh, others. And that has made all the difference, um, you know, in, in my life. You know, it's funny, Andrew, I, I so accept what you said to me when you, when you gave me that compliment. <laughs> it, that feels so good to, to have that. And I'll tell you what, I didn't have people talk about me in that way until I got very purposeful, you know, um, and I, so I appreciate that. And I think it's, it's what we're here for. I, if we're not here to help, then what are we here for? That, that, that's my theory. So to me, there's a very stoic saying, and I know this is going to get a little bit morbid and then I'll shut up, but I look at it like this. We, the three of us sitting here talking and everyone on this call who's listening, we are dying. We could, I could leave, hang up with you guys, go out on the street and die in 15 minutes. And my whole thing is, fine. That's the reality we all live in. What am I doing to make the world a better place right now? Not posturing and peacocking and stuff like that, but being kind and doing things that make a difference for people. While having boundaries, by the way, doesn't mean I'm a pushover and I'm, I'm a weakling. I have pretty strong boundaries. I'm not going to let you take advantage of me, but I have no, no issues putting myself out for my fellow man. I don't know which, this is where it can be funny. I don't know which study it was, and I think maybe Ben House brought it up. Um, but purpose usually trumps all in terms of longevity. Like you can have people that eat like shit, smoke, drink, and if they have a purpose, they, like that will drive longevity. So <laughs> personally, you could live longer. So I guess like that is selfish, but having a purpose that's rooted in probably less stressful ordeals like being nice 
and doing things for other people will end up driving that anyway. So it, it's like a it's like the best of all worlds. Just we've, have some purpose. We've mentioned this book a number of times on the podcast. Mark Fisher, I think, first mentioned it's the Man's Search for Meaning. And it is a book about, you know, finding meaning greater than yourself as being a way to endure the worst of all things that the world humanity can throw at you. It's, it's an author who, Viktor Frankl, he lived through the concentration camps uh, of the Second World War. So it's actually not a long read. It's, it's a pretty graphic stuff. But it's worthwhile reading for pretty much anyone. Jade is nodding in, in clear agreement there. But this actually yeah. goes into, and, you know, I, I wrote the questions, are you an avid reader? He's got a wall of books behind him, so we kind of have an answer to that. <laughs> no, that's just for sure. Unless they're decorative. Uh, but do you, do you have anything <laughs> that you really enjoy, you'd, you'd recommend to other people to read that would enrich their lives? Well, you know, so I love these conversations, right? Because they're, they're kind of serendipitous. Right before you brought up uh, Man's Search for Meaning, I was, get, I was literally getting ready to say, Think about Viktor Frankl, who went through four <laughs> concentration camps, yeah. lost his entire dissertation, lost his whole family. I think his sister survived. And then he turned all that pain and all that suffering into good. And we're still talking about Viktor Frankl's book years after he's dead. And by the way, it'll be hundreds of years. So I look at it like that ripple effect. Our lives, right? It's kind of like dropping a stone into a water. When, when that stone hits the water, it makes those ripples. That's our birth. And then when we sink to the bottom... And that stone hits the, that, the sand at the bottom of that lake, we're dead. But those ripples can continue and continue and continue. And by the way, we don't know. Now, you know, Victor Frankl probably, I would imagine, he did not write that book no. for, to, for accolades and achievement and to you know, be seen as this brilliant man. He did it because he wanted to turn his pain into something meaningful and purposeful. And I think that's ultimately what we do. So I oftentimes look at it like this. I have pain. I know you two do as well, and I know everyone listening to this has deep pain. What do we do with that pain? The way we turn pain into purpose is to give the world what we ourselves desire. That pain that caused us, we can learn from that and help keep other people from that pain. We teach our lessons. That's the way we do it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it was Elite FTS, totally meathead thing, but it was like live, learn, pass on. Um, I love that. Live, learn, pass yeah, on. Yeah, and genius. like even with my nutrition clients, it's like they'll be like, oh, I can't find this or like this is hard. And I'm like, like take what you're learning and, and pass it on. Stop worrying about what your coworkers think. Like start teaching people because find your purpose because this is for your kids. This is for your family. And it, if you can't find purpose on yourself, you can always find it in passing something on. And that's usually the easiest place to derive that purpose from because it's inside you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. Where do people find you? Um, <laughs> will you let us know, or our listeners know, where, where's the best place to find your work and, and the easiest place to reach you? Yeah, probably, I mean, probably the best. I think we're all hanging out on Instagram right now. That yeah. might change. I'm on Instagram at jadetita. I have a website, jadetita.com. But if you want to connect with me on Instagram, I try to do my best to answer as many DMs as I can. They're hard sometimes because <laughs> there's a lot to come through. But I like to be one of these guys who's accessible. So Catch me up there, and if you have questions for me, definitely hit me up, hit me up on the DM, and I'll try to answer your questions. This was this was really cool. This was different than a lot of what we do, and I'm always really proud of every guest we've ever had. And I feel like sometimes I'm a bit repetitive, but I really we don't bring guests on here because hey, well, fuck, we we don't have anybody for this week. Let's just get someone who's like passable. When uh, Chris Sugart was on, and he said, hey, you should get. Jade on here, and you should get Christian Thibodeau. I think Jade was the first to. one. He was yeah, like, you and, get Jade. and Paul Carter, who we just had. 
know, he was excited to tell us that because Chris doesn't even do these podcasts much at all. And I was like, fuck yeah, man. These are people that I've been reading their shit for a long time. And these are big, influential people. Guys, there's a reason why Jade is successful. Like I said before, you just listen to him and you can hear a lot of this stuff, right? He's, he's about as engaging as anyone gets in our world. So you're probably going to take a lot of stuff out of this, especially if you really enjoy this, the nutritional information, the evidence-based stuff about uh, metabolism, cortisol, hormones, you name it. So go and follow him. Go see what he's up to. Uh, maybe dig into some of his writing or his videos and see if you could take something away from it. And again, fit pros, go relist this thing because you can learn a lot about just being a successful, engaging fitness professional just from listening to what Jade had to say. So, Jade, thanks for being on here, man. It means a lot. You're a busy guy. You took the time to come talk to us. And that's uh, that's special. Andrew, Dean, I so appreciate your work, boys. <laughs> thanks so much for having me, man. Thank you, man. Shut up and sit down. Shut up and sit down.